That's okay. Good morning, everyone. Okay, if you don't have a Bible this morning, um, there should be one in front of you in the pew in the back. Um, They're the black ones that are in English. And we'll be in the book or more accurately, letter of 2 Corinthians this morning. Okay, let's do this. How are y'all doing? You guys enjoying the smog? Hasn't ended yet, but... I've been hoping that at the end of the day, my clothes would smell like campfire because that's like the best, you know? That's when you know you've had a good day, is that at the end, your, sm- your clothes smell like smoke. Okay, so we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, and then we'll flow into chapter 2, verse 4. And before, um, before we read it, I just want to share that. Um, I would encourage you all to, in your own time, or even... Um, in your home groups in the next couple weeks, take the time to read through this entire letter from, from cover to cover. Um, it's kind of a complex bounce back and forth letter. Um, and so if you have the time, I would encourage you to do that. There's a lot of context. There's a lot of subtext in this letter. So it'd probably be a good idea to at some point just take the time and do that. I think that'll, that'll help as we go along. So let's go ahead and read um, chapter 1, verse 23, through chapter 2, verse 4. Paul writes, But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote, as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, And with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Let's pray. God, please speak to us by your Holy Spirit this morning. May your word go forth into our hearts, Lord, and and be the sword that cuts away the things that need to be cut away. Lord, show us yourself, show us your heart for us as well as for others by this passage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so this week, the, the theme, as we see up here, um, as a part of this three-part series entitled, House Rules, How to Live Together as Christians. This is part two, and it's called, Do No Harm. And I just want to share about this phrase for a minute. The concept of do no harm, or, or more rightly put, first, do no harm, is, uh, is a phrase that dates back some time, 
to some degree to the Hippocratic Oath, although I, I was researching it and it may not have come from that, but there is that essence in the Hippocratic Oath that uh, physicians have been taking for centuries. So the fancy term for this phrase, do no harm, is called non-maleficence. Non-maleficence. Um, I actually watched the YouTube video on how to pronounce that. So, so this concept of non-maleficence or do no harm, what it, what it is, it, is it takes into account the inherent dangers of intervention, of doing something. So this is a big deal in medicine, um, especially Western medicine. As many of you know, medical interventions are potentially harmful much of the time. So if you think of surgery, you know, you're being cut open to, yes, repair something or remove something that shouldn't be there, but you're being cut open. That's potentially harmful. Or even chemotherapy, you know, you're receiving drugs to kill bad cells, but along with all of those bad cells, they're killing good cells too. And so this is why the concept of first do no harm or non-maleficence precedes another major concept um, in sort of this uh, medical ethics, which is do good. So it's first do no harm and then do good. And the do good is a fancy term for it is beneficence. Not benevolence, but beneficence. So there's non-maleficence, then there's beneficence. So the key there is to recognize that doing nothing has to be an option. It has to remain on the table. So this is because many times, you know, especially with Western medicine, doing nothing is actually better than doing something. So you've all been to the doctor, you know, and you got your complaint, whatever is going on, and, and you share that, and he or she just says, okay, um, why don't you keep your eye on it? And you're all, okay, and then he's like, he or she's like, all right, here's the bill. <laughs> you can pay 300 bucks for that. Not only do they not have any idea what's going on with you at that moment, they are also practicing this ethic of do no harm. In your case, in your situation, an intervention is not called for. You know, they could give you something. They could give you pills or a test or this or that. But many times, doing nothing and waiting is actually the right way to go. And then two weeks later, you're like, oh, it doesn't hurt anymore. Yes! So basically, this, this concept of do no harm means to stop and to think about the patient and their health, informing the doctor or medical provider not to do anything unless it's going to be promoting the patient's health and goals of care. So don't do something just because you're a doctor and you have the authority to prescribe something. Keep the patient's health the main thing. And if that means you don't do anything, then that's great. So once do no harm is established, then do good can happen. This means that those invasive procedures or interventions like surgery or chemotherapy, if they carry with them the opportunity to improve 
of patients' health, they should be carefully utilized because there's a net positive. The pros outweigh the cons. So as long as they are done with the right reasons, they can be considered doing something good. But first, it's do no harm. So basically, these two ideas, they, get, they sort of get priorities straight. In the medical field, the patient's health is the priority, not the authority of the doctor, nor the patient's opinion of the doctor. It's the patient's health and that alone that matters most. So this concept is a good illustration of how to love each other in the household of faith. So whether it's like we see here an apostle and church relationship like Paul and the Corinthians or a pastor and church member relationship or just between two fellow Christians. So I'm going to use this concept first, do no harm, second, do good as a two-part outline for our passage this morning. So there are two sections. The do no harm section here in verse 23 through chapter 2, verse 2, as well as the do good section in verse 3 and 4 of chapter 2. And this do no harm section, what it does is Paul is explaining why he didn't come back to Corinth after he stopped there for a little weekend on his way to Macedonia. And then he goes into the next section of describing what he did do instead. He didn't come back. He didn't, uh, as we'll see, punish them. He waited, and then he chose to do something else. And that's what we're going to get into today. So let me reread verses 23 of chapter 1 through 2, verse 2, and then we'll get into that do no harm section. He says, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? So we see here that Paul finally returns um, after sort of going into a tangent at the end of chapter 1. He returns to answer the accusation made against him in chapter 1, verse 17. You can peek back up there. He, he asks a rhetorical question. He says, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? So apparently, Paul's flaking out in not spending the winter in Corinth really peeved some of them. And they accused him of being a flake. And as we see also in verse 17, making his plans according to the flesh. And uh, in our home group this last week, we were, we were a little confused as to why this was such a big deal. Like, yeah, Paul couldn't make it. So what? Get her next time. Um, but two things we have to realize here. We live in, a, in an age of incredible connectedness. You can almost literally Facebook message any human being on the planet. You don't even have to be friends. And yeah, it'll probably go to their you know, spam folder, but you can try. 
And so, you know, we live in an age where we're connected. Like, if we miss our, our trip here, we can, we can stay connected. We can FaceTime. We can Marco Polo. We can bubble. Like, we can do this stuff. We use the phrase rain check a lot. Like, about as much as it rains in Seattle. We, you can have an entire relationship where maybe you hung out once, and then you basically rain check for the rest of your life. Like, hey, that was so fun when we hung out. Let's hang out again put it in the calendar. Two weeks later, hey man, sorry, I got a rain check. And then it just continues forever. So Paul missed his trip. He didn't, he didn't come back. And we don't really get the big deal of this, but apparently it was a big deal. And then secondly, we have to realize that this flakiness or vacillation accusation is only one of six accusations made against Paul that are referenced throughout this letter. So others include, Paul didn't have a letter of recommendation. Also, he wasn't that great of a speaker, apparently. And so he hid behind his letters. Um, He had a big authority behind his letters, but in person he was not that great, apparently. He wouldn't take their money, which somehow offended them. And he didn't seem like a true apostle, perhaps because he thought, or they thought he suffered too much. So this accusation of flakiness or vacillation seems to just be sort of icing on the cake of a general distrust rampant in this church. It's not necessarily their primary complaint, but it was an easy one to make given that his name was on the calendar and, wait, where is he? He didn't come. So either way, Here in verse 23, Paul is now offering his reason for refunding his bus ticket. Why didn't he come back? So here in verse 23, he continues this image of a case, sort of a courtroom picture. He calls God to witness to the stand. And we saw in chapter 1, verse 12, that at first his conscience was bearing witness, but now he's he's sort of throwing all his cards into, the, into God's testimony. The against me here, he says, I call God to witness against me. That literally means against my life. Basically, he's saying, God, go ahead and just kill me if this isn't true. One commentator pointed out that the gravity of Paul's words here in this passage indicates that his absence from Corinth remained a matter of deep hurt. Paul hated to be strained with them. This was a church that he founded himself. He invested in them. The language that Paul uses here in these six verses indicates that this was, this was a relationship that was hanging on by a thread. It was almost broken. It was almost gone. The word pain in verse or uh, in noun and verb form appears five times in this in these six verses so he declares the reason that he didn't come back he says it was to spare you from what we have to ask ourselves what would have happened if he had come back well here's the thing we got to do some context because this passage is filled to the brim with There's something going on, and it's not exactly laid out clearly here. 
So let me catch you up on what we know of the situation. So Paul had planned on hanging with them for three months, at least, maybe longer. We, we know that because he penned it in the letter, the first letter to the Corinthians, verses 5 through 7. He wanted to do that, and he wanted to do that after he passed through Macedonia. Macedonia is on the north, uh, Corinth is in Greece south, and then and there's the, the sea here, and then all the way around is Ephesus. That's sort of the picture. So he planned on going through Macedonia and hanging out in Corinth for a while. But apparently he ended up making a trip to Corinth prior to Macedonia, and he had still hoped to hang out for longer after coming, you know, after leaving and coming back, as we know in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 1. But this unplanned, spontaneous perhaps visit, it didn't go well. It went badly. In fact, the Corinthians hurt Paul horribly. What happened? What, what went on? Well, it looks like, from what we can piece together here in, in this letter, from chapter 2, verses 5 and 7, uh, and then chapter 7, verse 12, that one person in particular was the culprit, and verba, verba, excuse me, verbally and publicly attacked Paul in front of everyone. And the church failed to come to his defense. So he left, and he canceled his return trip. So, it was to spare the church that he didn't come back. What, from what? Perhaps he was talking about a public chastisement that just would have been rough. Calling out this culprit, rebuking the congregation for not coming to his defense. Potentially damaging their relationship further. Whatever the punishment was that Paul could have dished out, we see here that he didn't do it. In fact, for a time, he chose to do nothing. He just leaves. He gets some air. So from our, from our introduction, from our theme here, this is the do-no-harm piece. He chooses to not intervene at this moment. He's got to just... Let it be for a sec. He must have thought that dishing out the punishment, at least this time, would have caused even more problems. And the question is, why? Why does he take this route? Why does he spare them? And verse 24 offers an aside that helps to clarify his motives for doing nothing. But before we read verse 24 again, I want you just to notice that verse 23 and chapter 2, verse 1, they flow together like PB&J. Like he, 24 didn't have to be in there at all. If you look, he says, It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth, for I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. So why is verse 24 there? It seems like it's just kind of plopped in there. So in the middle of explaining his reason for not coming back, Paul wants to drive a key point home. 
verse 24, he says, Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in the faith. So Paul, yes, he's an apostle. Yes, he started this church. He has authority. But he is not Lord. The Corinthians do not stand or fall based on faith in Paul. Their relationship is a partnership, not a dictatorship. That, that sentence, we work with you for your joy, that's just a great statement of his heart, of his goal. So for Paul, it wasn't about preserving his authority in their lives. It was about pushing them, helping them, working with them toward joy in Christ. If Paul just came back and just laid the guilt bomb on them, not only would it have likely destroyed a chance at reconciliation with him, but it might have pushed them away from their very source of joy, which is Jesus. So, he chose to hang back, to wait, to try a different method. And this is exactly the sort of leadership in the church that Jesus wanted. That word or that phrase, lord it over, Jesus uses that word during his last dinner with his disciples. So they're sitting on the ground, they're eating, and all of a sudden, the disciples start to argue amongst themselves about who of them was going to be the greatest. And it's always, it's always just funny to read that. In the middle of this Last Supper, the disciples start arguing, which one of us is going to be the best? What do you think? And Jesus is like, whoa, hold on a second. And what he says is, the kings of the Gentiles, the rulers of this earth that you know about, what they do in their authority is they lord it over people. And then he says, but this is not to be the case with you. With you, you are to be servants. You are to lead by serving. And that was what he did. So Paul here takes the opportunity not to exercise his authority and to spare them harm. So with us, God has given us, not only as pastors, but all of you, the church, the opportunity to help, to work with, to disciple others in their relationship with Christ. So when those opportunities come, we must all remember that this, this thing is not about us. Check out chapter 4, verse 5. Paul writes, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. What we as Christians believe and proclaim is not ourselves. We have nothing to do with this gospel. It's not because of us. We didn't do it. Someone else did. We stand on that. 
So we need to remember that. And what does that realization, what does that remembering of that do? It makes us, it makes us lighthearted. We go about helping others, serving others, not for our own sake. It makes us lighthearted enough to know that it's not about us. It makes us humble because it's not about our glory anymore. It helps us set our gaze on Christ. Because as we have opportunities to point people to Jesus, the more we need to set our gaze on Jesus. So after this aside here in verse 24, Paul jumps back into his explanation. In verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. Again, this visit sucked. It was rough. There was just no productive reason to come right back. They needed space. He needed space. They needed time. And we have to remember what shoes Paul is in here. Remember, we just went through a series on suffering. Why? Because Paul is describing the suffering that he experienced chapter 1, verse 8, in Asia. He's, he's trying to tell the Corinthians what he was going through prior to this visit. He had it, he, we don't even know what was going on, but it was terrible. He says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. So here he was, in this state. He's crawling towards Corinth with the hope that perhaps he'd find some encouragement. And wham, it, do, it doesn't happen. They treat him poorly. They don't defend him. They, act, they accuse him. And then in verse 2, he says, For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? So the word, the, the I there is emphatic. It, it's supposed to be emphasized. Paul, the father of this church, has been lambasted by them. But he is the focal point of the controversy. He is the gas that's fueling the fire. Him being there is not helping right now. So going back isn't going to help him, and it sure is not going to help them. It's sort of like a guy breaks up with a girl on Thursday night, and then at, on Friday morning at 8 a.m., the girl gets a text hey, um, I was just wondering, can we get coffee? Can we, can we just talk? And she's like, no. We, what? No, you just broke up with me. Like, this is not going to work. It's too soon. And for Paul, for the Corinthians, another visit right away would have just not been good. So Paul, even though he's been hurt, he does no harm. He spares them. He doesn't come back. He has authority in this church, but he takes the time to emphasize that life is not about him. And so an immediate face-to-face -face intervention just is not called for yet. And so he waits. But he does not stop there. Paul desires reconciliation with them. He hates being strained with them. And so he chooses to do something. Let's read uh, verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2. 
He says, and I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So here we leave the do no harm section where Paul says, okay, I'm just going to leave it for a sec. And we enter the do good section where, yes, he didn't come back. Yes, he, he had to pencil, you know, scratch away his calendar uh, plans. But he chooses to do something. And so he writes. And this is our first mention uh, in this letter of what we call the severe letter. The opening um, phrase of chapter, uh, verse 3. And I wrote as I did. Now this letter is gone. We do not have it. Is he okay? Lord, we just pray healing over our wonderful little man, Jesus' name. So we do not have this letter, but apparently it was quite the scorcher. Um, but Paul did not have to write. He could have just sort of let time do what time does. In fact, one commentator mentions that verse 1 could have originally been in an absolute sense. That he says, I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. And, you know, we take for granted that 2 Corinthians is even here. It could have just, just been done. But sometimes, as many of us know, time heals things sometimes in a broken way. That time alone could not heal Paul. It could not bring about reconciliation. And most importantly, it could not push the Corinthians towards the repentance they so desperately needed. And so he chose to write. You know, perhaps after leaving and cooling off with the Lord's help, realigning himself with Christ, he sat back down, maybe in Ephesus, and anxiously penned this letter. He chose strategic, thoughtful confrontation of their sin, and thus began the difficult and exhausting path of pursuing reconciliation. If any of you have ever been in a rough interpersonal conflict situation where something has occurred, you've done something, they've done something, you've both done something, and the relationship might just be dead. And the anguish, the turmoil that is a part of that experience is rough. And if you've ever been in that state and then proceeded to pursue restoration, to pursue reconciliation, it's only happened to me about once, maybe one and a half times. But it's a long haul of emotional days Evenings, nights, weekends, it's 24-7. Those seasons can be extremely difficult. 
in pursuing reconciliation with someone who, who there's, a, there's, some, there's a brokenness there. That is, that is exhausting work, is it not? It's awkward. It involves humbling yourself. It's painful. But many times, it's worth it. So Paul here writes in verse 3, I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. And so he writes with the plan of a future visit. He's investing in the future. He says, maybe, maybe we'll have a joyful reunion someday. And he's hopeful about it. But if we, we know from uh, chapter 7, verse 8, that Paul, after writing and sending this letter on the, by the hand of Titus, that he kind of regretted it for a minute. And if many of you have been in that state where you, you write an email or a text and you hit send and then your stomach goes, oh gosh, should I have written that? Should I have sent that? Should I have waited three months before sending that? In chapter 7, verse 8, Paul says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you. And so for a second, Paul's like, oh man, I don't know if I should do this. Because he knew that calling them out on their stuff was going to hurt. Confrontation is not fun. But sometimes it's love. When confrontation is needed, it can be the most loving thing someone can do. And the truth is we all need people in our lives who are willing to confront us on our stuff. And really all confrontation is, in the biblical sense, is an invitation to confession. It's an opportunity for someone to be open, to expose themselves, to receive help. And that's why I think they're, they're related I think to avoid times where we need to confront or people need to confront us, we need to keep a culture of being continually confessional with one another. And this is sort of leaving the door of your life open. You've all been in school environments or work environments where the professor or the boss has sort of an open door policy where their office door is just always open. And this needs to be a part of the Christian life, too. Of course, this isn't just a willy-nilly sharing all of your business with every single person in the world, but this is a strategic, intentional, leaving yourself vulnerable to someone you can trust, someone's you can trust. So Paul knew that reconciliation with the Corinthians without confrontation of their sin was not going to be possible. So he doesn't hold back the truth of what they did. He says, I, I wrote so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. They should have made him rejoice. 
but they didn't. Paul was an intense affliction, crawling towards Corinth with the hope that he could be cheered. And he doesn't. They blew it. They had an opportunity to encourage him. And instead, they heaped, up, heaped upon him additional pain. Maybe you've experienced this where you're, you're, you're nose to the grindstone hoping that this thing, this person, this experience, this weekend, this blank will revive you. But instead, he or she or it or they cause additional pain. And whoa, I was not expecting that. And somehow, despite the grave state the relationship was in, Paul was hopeful that his joy would be the joy of them all. Paul here is displaying the confidence that God will write this thing. Just as in chapter 1, when we, when we studied about the God who is the God of all comfort, who comforts us in any affliction, he can also bring joy out of the affliction of a pain-filled relationship. And that is something God can do. That's why Paul is willing to step out, to risk, to confront these people, because ultimately it will be for their joy and will pay off in a joyful reunion with him someday. We've all seen confrontation gone wrong. We've perhaps participated in confrontation that we knew was just didn't help anything. Paul here displays a wonderful way that this can be done. In several places um, in the letters to the Corinthians, the first and second Corinthians, Paul declares himself to be the father of them, their spiritual father. And we see this heart in verse 4. He says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. This is why he doesn't just write them off. This is why he spared them a harsh punishment. This is why he is pursuing them with the determination and tenacity and a strategy that is one of the clearest signs of love. Paul has the heart of a good father towards his children. Paul had external affliction already. He now has internal relational affliction, which, as many of you might have experienced, a lot of times is worse. You know, you could be suffering physical pain, but to suffer relational, emotional pain it hurts. It hurts in a way that physical pain doesn't. So he writes to them here, out of anguish of heart and with many tears. Uh, Calvin said, a good pastor should weep within before making others weep. So he, he knows he needs to be careful. He knows that these are, these are his children. He's He's going to treat them with respect, but he's going to call them out on their stuff. But it's rough. It hurts. He's attempting to, to cut away these harmful things 
but he's afraid to lose them. But he's willing to risk it because of his abundant love for them. And he wants what is best. Now, remember, he doesn't just excuse their sin. He doesn't just say, oh, you know, no biggie. What you did, you know, wasn't a big deal. Just don't forget about it. He looks it straight in the face. He doesn't excuse it. He doesn't say, don't worry about it. He deals with it head on. But he does it in a thoughtful, loving way. In his case, by letter. And as a side note, I think these sorts of things can't really happen by text or uh, Instagram direct message. And so he strategizes, what is the best way to do this? How can I, how can I show them the deep, deep love I have for them? When we have opportunities to love each other towards Christ, you know, whether it be in confrontation whether it be pursuing reconciliation or just regular old friendship, where can we find this sort of love? So first, you know, whether you are a Christian or not this morning, we all have a first step in this. The first step is to recognize that this is the heart of God for you. Paul knew this to the T. He was a murderer, and God spared him. God pursued him. God graciously and gently knocked him off his horse and then proceeded to walk with him through thick and thin. So this is the heart of God, not only for Paul, but for you, but for me. God didn't write you off. He spared you a harsh punishment, He took it upon himself in Jesus Christ. And he is pursuing you with determination and tenacity and a strategy that is one of the clearest signs of love. And so once we recognize that, once we remember that, what we need to do is what I've had to do constantly since I started any type of ministry, whether it be capital M, lowercase m, leading a home group, being a pastor, or just being a Christian over there at work. I have to ask God for this heart almost every time. And by his spirit, he pours out the love of God in our hearts. So when I find myself, when I come across a situation where I feel like I need to do something, I need to say something just because I should, God quiets me down, and he says, why don't you just ask me for love for them? And that's where you start. Because if you're being motivated by what you have to do, what you should do, what they should be doing, it's not out of a heart that we see here, the heart of God. And God gives that love. All of a sudden, you love that person not for what they can do for you, but because God is filling you with his love to prioritize them, their their health. This is to do no harm. This is to stop, to stop with our motivation for our glory, for our self-interest, and to receive 
the heart that God wants us to have for one another. Then, though, then he helps us strategize using that very love to thoughtfully take action, even if it's difficult. This is to do something good. So do no harm. Do something good by God's grace and by his spirit. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we see here not only the heart of Paul for this ancient church, but we see the heart of a loving, good father for his children. The heart that you have for us. Lord, we ask for your heart for one another. We ask for your heart for the people in our city. We ask for your heart for the lost who do not know Christ. May we ask for that over and over and over again. And we pray for that love and the wisdom on what to do with it, how to go about these things. Thank you for your heart. Thank you that you're willing to sanctify us. Thank you that you are the great physician. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.